that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola. Very happy to be back with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle. Oh, stop that. Wikipedia? Yeah, I like that, right? Could I make that a hashtag? Yeah. I'm I th- learning so much now. <laughs> no, I, I like Wikipedia. I like Wikipedia. Yeah. I, I would love so. that. Could you make that into a T-shirt? Yes, actually, I could do that pretty quickly. That'd be nice. No, I mean, I'm on that. I will get that done uh, sometime this week. See, I'm getting with the program. Yeah, I'm, I'm you are. At my own speed. Yeah, yeah, you're getting there. In my own way. Yeah, you I mean you're not exactly at Rose merchandising level yet. She knows the opportunity when she sees it. She knows how to turn something into a T-shirt. And... Talking about merchandising, I am going to shake down the listeners for my Morona Ramon de Feast. Oh, yeah, your feast is coming up. That was not a setup, but that no, was, it was not that, a setup. That was not a setup, but that was the hand of God. Yeah, tell everybody when the feast is coming up. I don't make a nickel off of this podcast. It costs me money. That's true. I don't ask for a nickel. I don't want a nickel. But I do want your nickel for my feast. <laughs> I set up a go. For, I don't ask for anything, but this is my tax collection day. This is your friendship tax, as you tell me all the time. I don't ask. It's my, I, I call everybody it's a friendship tax. Now, some people can give a lot. Some people can give little. Some people don't have anything to give, and that's okay. But. If you want to spread the love around, if I have done anything to help you on this quest of Italianita, I don't ask for anything for myself, but I would like to shake you down for the feast that I run in New Jersey every year from Morona Ramonda. Now, I don't know. How do you promote GoFundMe? We could put the link up on our show page or on our social media, surely. Yeah. I want to purchase a gonfalone. You want to explain that to the rest of the audience? I, I know that because of our friendship, but I would not have known that right. otherwise. As John can tell you, I have meticulously worked to recreate a Campania, a Cilento feast here in the United States. Everything, everything I get from Naples, everything is the top. So when you come, the experience is top notch. Why, John? Because everything you do is top notch, Pat. Thank you, John. I only get the best. I only get the best. I only get the best. You're obsessive about it, too. Obsessive. Obsessive. About many things. That's just one of my many obsessions. I could say I've spent what? And I'm not lying. This is real i think we spent five hours on the low end negotiating the size of the processional crucifix in via san gregorio armeno in naples uh my gosh a couple of years ago now but i mean you you do everything exacting you want everything to the hyper specific best and most authentic you can get and you've over the years all the money you've raised you've invested back in the feast right yes what's a gonfalone by the way gonfalone is a 13 foot high banner that's like a sail on a ship. It was like a noble banner that they would use in these processions. Now, the Mofetes, and shout out to the Mofetes in Hoboken, they actually have a gonfalone that they use in their procession. They're the only other procession I know in the U.S. that has a gonfalone. <laughs> there is now one gonfalone <laughs> in New Jersey. There will soon be two. And your donations are going to help to make that happen. I have someone lined up in Bologna to make the gonfalone that will match my banner. Bologna, huh? I know it's in Bologna. I should have it done in Naples. Sometimes Bologna is a little bit easier. And I will have a 13-foot-high gonfalone in a procession going around Clifton, New Jersey. And you've done this for how many years running since you revived the feast? Ten. I think it's ten. I think it's ten this year. Yeah, I, I was trying to do the math. Because this was a feast that went dormant in the 80s. It started in the 50s, came to America in the 50s, went dormant in the 80s. You brought it back about ten years ago. Yeah, correct. And it's grown 
incredibly. I mean, if people yeah, tell them where and when it is in case listeners want to come out and participate. May 15th in Clifton, New Jersey, Holy Face Monastery on Route 3. Yeah, and even if you're not a particularly religious person, this is just a great opportunity to get together. It's a really wonderful Italian-American day. Listen, some people out there aren't Catholic. Some of you are atheists. Some of you don't believe in organized religion or giving to charities. Or you want the feeling of an authentic Italian neighborhood. This is a shakedown. That's very true. Because people would go from door to door to make collections for the feast. I remember this. Yeah. So they would go around with a little notebook, like the size of my hand. And they would say, Mari, Chingabets, Mary, five hours, they would put down. And depending on your donation, you get a little like takeaway. Yeah. So if you gave like a dollar, you get a holy card. Three to five hours, you got a keychain. This is 1980 prices. You're not getting away with that. <laughs> Don't think you're going to. You get a keychain. Um, You might get a medal. You know, $10, you got a little bit better. 20 back then, you got more. And they would put all the names in a book. And in Jersey City, this was a Jersey City custom. They would take all the money and they would pin it on like a basket, like a funeral basket that you get for a week on the ribbons. And then when the statue passed your house in procession, if you had made the collection, you would donate the basket with all the money that you raised. Yeah, it's common. Because there were people who were committed. They were committed fundraisers for feasts. They would go door to door, house to house. And that's how they would raise money. They'd say, you know, you know, uh, this saint, that saint, you know, collection for San Dandonia. They give you five dollars. I could collection for my own garment. I actually remember that. I actually remember I was a little kid and there was a woman in Jersey named Angie Coletti. And Angie Coletti went up to my grandmother and asked my grandmother for money for Maronu Garmina, which is already in Mount Carmel. And my grand, I remember my grandmother gave a dollar, five dollars, and we got a keychain and a holy card. And I remember I said to my grandmother, who is that? She goes, that's Maronu Garmina. That's the first time I remember seeing a lady in Mount Carmel. Wow. And I was a little kid. It was St. Anthony on the other side. In our neighborhood in Williamsburg, we're you know famous for the Giglio, which is nowadays a combination of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and St. Paulinus of Nola. And their big fundraiser was the Guest, where they would go and sell the blessed bread, you know, I think how many weeks before. It was a donation. All these things were, they were kind of thank yous for a donation. It's interesting to think now, like we take for granted, a lot of these feasts have become sort of secularized social gatherings, community gatherings, and, you know, they're put on by civic groups and nonprofits and things, but there's still a lot of them out there that are religious in nature and their fundraising is all kind of, you know, hand to mouth to keep these things going. And that was actually considered a humiliation to go door to door to knock on doors to ask for money. That was considered a penance. Hmm. So you could give your own money, but it was considered more, even more pious to ask other people for theirs. Because they could say, no, you might have to ask. That's the truth. So they would actually, that was almost considered begging for the saint. Now, a lot of times people would do it for vows. I remember there was a family in Jersey City. Um, the aunt had no children, but she had many nephews in World War II. And she made a vow to the Blessed Mother that if all the boys came home safe from the war, she would have a feast for Our Lady of Pompeii every year at Holy Rosary in Jersey City. And she was close to 100, and she would send like all these roses. She was in a nursing home, and she still basically had her, her nieces and nephews organize it every year. Wow. But that was a devotion. So if you want that real Italian experience, I am now knocking on your door <laughs> with my little notebook. I'll put you in the book. I'll plug your feast and say it's a great day out. It's at Holy Face Monastery in Clifton, New Jersey. It's a beautiful setting. Uh, it's a wonderful mass outside, the procession. You've got so many young families involved, but also – it's really just good fun. And uh, we, the past couple of years, we've had listeners come out and turn out and be part of it. And they, I think they've always enjoyed it. So if you want a chance to 
definitely meet Pat, meet some of us from the show, and uh, meet other listeners out there who are you know, making the pilgrimage out to be part of Pat's annual feast. It's really wor- well worth uh, the drive out there, and it's a lot of fun. So I hope everybody does participate and come out, and I know I'll be out there. And it'd be nice to meet everybody, and it's a, it's a kind of wonderful yearly gathering, and you've worked really hard on it, so we're proud of you. We're very proud Thanks, of you. Thank you, John. And it's nice to everybody together, you know. So, I mean, speaking of being together around our faith, yesterday we spent the day with some of the IAP team uh, at my little baby daughter's christening. and She is adorable. Oh, thank you. Listen, I'm not just saying this. God bless you. You got to say everybody's kid is cute even when they really aren't. <laughs> but, I mean, kids look like raisins and prunes sometimes. But, God, you did a, you and Nicole did a great job. God bless That's you. That's because she's got such a fat face. She's got such Mod a on. She's face. beautiful. Yeah, she is oh. a beautiful. You really did a great. Thank you. Great, great job. Congratulations. Keep them coming. You set up the wonderful baptism. We had the baptism in Latin and the old rite, and it was just really stunning. I was I was thinking about today. You got to do the baptism in the old rite. There's just no, no it's option. Like it. There's nothing no, it's like really it. really unbelievably moving. And everybody in you know, both families, most people haven't, if they were alive, haven't heard a Latin mass since uh, the early 60s. So many, many people came up to me to tell me how different it was than the modern baptism and how beautiful and how moving. And somebody... Thought, I forget who it was. Somebody thought that the entirety was in Italian. And I said, no, that was Latin. That was not Italian. Like, it was way over somebody's head that this was in Latin. But uh, really had a great time. And it made a big difference. And it made me think about the fact that, you know, many of our community are not obviously going to Latin masses. They're, they're not going to Italian masses either. And there are a lot of them out there. And it's appropriate to the topic we have today because we have two guests on who are in different ways working towards the same goal of, not only revealing where these Italian masses are around the city and around the country. They are the future. Yeah. I could be their parent. I could have yeah. fathered either one of them. No scandal. There's <laughs> no scandal at all. Today we have two superstars on the show. But we've been talking for so long now, they're probably going to go away. They probably left by now. They're probably left. We, they we still here? got them here. First of all, we have uh, a friend of ours, a very good friend of ours, who is, uh, besides his incredible activity, Throughout the Catholic Church here in New York, New Jersey, all over. I mean, the guy is all over the place. And spilling a Calabria. You cannot and forget spe- spilling a Calabria. That's true. He is a, a teacher of the Italian language. And uh, I thought he'd been on the show before, but he hasn't. Mr. Eric Lavin, professor, is going to be on with us. And then joining him, we have a young woman who has been in the lead on creating this project to discover and revive Italian masses here in New York City. She is currently part of the team at the Archdiocese of New York. And uh, in my show notes from Stephanie, I was able to discover that she, like myself, is an alumnus of Fordham University in uh, New York City here. So it's very happy for us to have Alexis Cara Tracy. It's wonderful to welcome you both to the Italian American Podcast. Guys, thanks for coming on. Thank you, John. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for having us. You give us way too much credit. Now you guys are doing such great work. I mean, first of all, Pat makes a great point. We are getting older, and leadership in the community is thankfully getting younger, so that's wonderful. It's great to see so many new projects and pursuits. And uh, Alexis, I'm going to start with you because you are, like I say, at the Archdiocese of New York, but independently on your own, you've created this Italian Mass project. So tell us about this because I think this is really fascinating. Yeah, so I am at the Archdiocese, so I'm an attorney there. That's quite interesting. But this Italian Mass project is actually something that I'm doing independently. And I think it was maybe a project that was born out of some reflection during COVID. So during COVID, during 2020, 
I really started thinking more about, you know, what was important to me. You know, obviously life is so precious. How do I want to live my life? All these types of things. And obviously I was very active in the church. I'm connected in the archdiocese. But then I also started thinking more about my Italian identity. So that's always been an important part of who I am. I mean, the traditions, making tomato sauce, you know, spending time with my grandparents, just something that I really, really hold dear to my heart. But I felt that, I don't know, aside from, let's say, feasts and processions, I wanted to discover something both Italian and Catholic or bring it together because I felt that I was in a lot of Italian spheres or Catholic spheres, but there wasn't enough of them together. And then what I saw in other people, specifically, let's say people my age or people that I was you know, just talking to, there was this desire to get in touch with their roots, you know, a longing to find out, you know, who am I, where, where do I come from? It's a very common feeling of people in my generation, even Eric's generation. But then there was also a feeling of, well, as time has passed, you know, we're all becoming more assimilated. And that can be, you know, obviously there's some benefits to it, but then there's also a loss. So a lot of those things were, were in the background. Now, I also started thinking about my mom's childhood. So she had what would be considered a very traditional Italian-American experience, specifically if we're talking about, let's say, the church or spending time. Like she had those, that, that standard Sunday experience where she would go to church with her family in the morning. She's from an Italian community in the Bronx, very close-knit. Then she would come back home and they had the homemade pasta with gravy, her grandparents cooking, relatives would come over. And there was a sense of family and faith that was tied together. So again, all these things were in my mind. And then I saw, you know, I, again, you know, we shouldn't really be looking back to the past and, uh, you know, oh, it was better that way. But I think there are elements of the past that we should be bringing to the present. And perhaps that's one of them. I like the past better. <laughs> you like the past better? Yeah. No, but I was just comparing maybe. I don't landlines. Know. Can't be the landline. I guess, but you, you can't, you can't go back in time. <laughs> with the landline. I want to campaign. Bring back the landline. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for, for, for most people, though, you, you can't you can't go back in time. And if I'm comparing it to a lot of people, again, people my age, friends, people are feeling lonely, isolated. You know, life seems fragmented on an existential level. People are looking for this sense of purpose, something real. So, again, those are so many things in the background. So then I was like, OK, I have you know, the benefit of being an Italian American and the benefit of being Catholic. So why not try crafting this new Italian American Catholic ministry? So something that can supplement and complement societies and processions, but something that could be practiced on a more regular basis. So that's a little bit of how I started the project. I started it in October, 2021. Really, it's a volunteer effort, a volunteer effort among friends. It still is. This is not, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting paid to do any of this. And it's grown. So originally what I started doing was categorizing all the Italian and English Italian masses that still existed in New York State. So either regularly or monthly, I, I have the catalog. We can share it at some point as well. There's about 35 of them. And I started promoting them. My husband's like, well, then why don't you just share this on social media? So then I created a Facebook page for it and just started promoting it. That's actually how Eric and I had, had, had connected. 
But then I started also feeling that I should do something else in addition to just promoting it, that I should actually start maybe hosting my own events to try to demonstrate what this new Italian American Catholic ministry could be, what it could look like. So we had our first event in February, and then we had another event this past Sunday. So it's been interesting, and a lot, it's bringing together a lot of good people, a lot of people that previously would not have been interested in something Italian and Catholic in this way. And what's your what's your age demographic for them? How I may I ask? You never want to ask uh, on the air, but you and I went to the same school. I'm assuming you graduated far after I did. Uh, how old are you, John? At that age, it's not an insult. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm I'm 28 years old. 28, so you're considerably younger. And what's the demographic showing up for your events and things like that? So it's it's a combination of people my age, so people in their 20s and 30s. So I would say that's about half the group. And then the other half would be about people, let's say, a bit older, maybe 50s, 60s. So it's intergenerational, mm. but we do have a key younger component. And I think that that's been good. And Eric, how old are you? 27. 27. So you guys are the same age, same generation. And you obviously work out of Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church in Newark, New Jersey. You've been there for a long time. Um, he was born in the sacristy, I think. <laughs> Am I right? Well, it's true. My, listen, my grandmother pretty much said, she goes, you know, I brought him to church and I kind of left him there. So Yeah, you. I mean, I as long as I've known you, you've been there and you've been an integral part of what is uh, still an Italian national parish, I guess, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. We're the third oldest in New Jersey. Wow. And you've made a great effort to sort of know not only where things are, where they used to be. We were talking a little bit off the mic about your pursuit of where these Italian societies used to be and Italian churches used to be. Um, what do you see in terms of, as, a, as particularly as a teacher of Italian, right? Your, your real life career is about spreading the language with young kids. What do you see in terms of a, a, a youth appreciation for this kind of stuff? Is it something that's easy to engage young people in? I think so. I mean, listen, uh, you know, you, you obviously need a vehicle, right? And I think if we could use, you know, uh, the interesting things that the church has to offer, you know, that is the interesting statues and relics and, and artwork and, and, and something that's a draw, you know, why, why did our ancestors bring this? Why did they believe in this? Why did they have this? I think that would be an, an awesome vehicle to kind of gauge and promote that interest. Um it's very hard. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It's, it's, it's an uphill battle, you know. But why is it an uphill battle? That's my question. You want me to tell you? Because as a teacher, I think, I think we did a bad job teaching people. I think we did a bad job, you know, educating. You know, I think maybe giving example. You know, I had my grandmother to be my example. You know, not everybody had their grandmother to, to drag them to church and say, hey, wake up, wash your face, and we're going to go, you know. Um, you know, and nowadays, you know, everybody has their life and, you know, and, and, children of their own and activities of their own. And, you know, it's kind of hard to, I guess, break that mold. I mean, I don't want to make excuses, but um, I think that, you know, if people really made the effort to kind of appreciate or perhaps, you know, give themselves that challenge, I mean, really an hour a week, isn't that too much to ask for? But can I ask a question here? And I think that, you know, um, I had said to Alexis, like, we have a lot of listeners out there, maybe who didn't grow up with this the way that we did. So, they see the Italian mass as a, as a language option. So it's not a mass in English. It's not mass in Italian, but it's so much more. Eric, why don't you tell a little bit, what, what does the Italian language mass at Mount Carmel in Newark mean to the Spill and Jays community? 
I mean, it means everything. It's a, I mean, it's a point, uh, a point of gathering, right? I mean, and I'm, and I'm sure that you know, Alexis could could jump in here too. You know, think about uh, the Italian paese, right? You have a piazza, a gathering place, a meeting place, a focal point. You know, an exchange of ideas, uh, of thoughts, of of meeting, of gathering. I mean, and then you know, the Italian mass nowadays in the United States offers that opportunity. You know, you meet and you gather with your own paisans. Maybe you have paisan. You know, we also have people from uh, San Polo Matese. In, uh, in the province of um, Campobasso that come here too. So they're from Molise. I mean, it, and it's interesting, you know, you see the, the, you know, the dialogue, the, the exchange, but what it means is that, you know, it, it is um, a routine, but more than a routine, it's, it's a, a gathering, a family, a small family, you know, an extension of the paese at large, right? So like when the, when the Spielingers have someone who dies, a family member in Spielinger, how does that change your average Sunday mass? Oof. Explodes. 150, 200 people. You know, they, they make that the venue of, you know, of condolences, giving condolences to one another. It's kind of an impromptu wake in America. Correct. So, so the relative got buried in Italy. Correct. And the people who are here offer the family here condolences by going to the Italian mass, which is offered for the repose of the relative who just died. Am I correct? In correct. Because if you can't travel back, you know, we've also had, you know, those paisans that have passed away in Buenos Aires in Argentina, same, same situation, you know. And Alexis, I know Eric grew up speaking Italian and, and Calabrese in the house because I know him, but you, you mentioned your mother had a typical Italian-American upbringing. Did you grow up speaking Italian in the house? So that's good. That's a funny question. So it's, Italian is my mom's first language. So her family came to the 60s and they didn't speak English at all. So when she spoke to me in the household, it was mainly in English, but because my grandparents were always close and nearby, I picked up some of the language from being home. Mm. So that was, and then it was reinforced in schools. I studied it, let's say in high school and college, but I didn't, it was, I'm not going to consider Italian my first language, but I had familiarity with it relatively early on. And then it's something I, you know, developed as I got older. You made an effort to create a fluency for yourself. Yeah, I, I, w- I wouldn't say, I think expressing complex ideas in Italian is still a bit challenging to me, but definitely to be conversant because I felt that, you know, why not? This is the language of my ancestors, the language of my grandparents. You know, why not? Obviously, you know, so many people are looking to learn other languages, but why not start with the language that's closest to you? So obviously there's English for people in the U.S., but then for Italian-Americans, it's often Italian. I was having that conversation yesterday with the baptism because I felt my brothers and I made an effort, even though our parents are not fluent Italian, to sort of reclaim the language as part of our recommitment to our heritage in a, in a changing time and in a, in a fast assimilation and things like that. And I, I often think to myself, you know, there are people out there who see the value of reclaiming the language. I, I think that's a trend. I, I know when I was at the National Italian American Foundation, we put a lot of effort into preserving and promoting the AP language exam and, you know, that kind of stuff. And those numbers were on the upswing. I think they still are. Do you find a lot of people who are participating in these events because of the pursuit of language? Some. I think it's more the pursuit of the community or that they know Italian, the Italian mass is associated with community. So even if their Italian is shaky, they'll still go to the mass. They'll understand as much as they can in Italian because they know that they want that community afterwards and during. But I don't know, it's interesting because there's a lot of Italian masses and there's also English Italian masses. 
and because I've you know gone to a lot of them just to assess and see, but the English Italian masses, I think, do a good job of preserving that Italian component, but then still having that, I don't know, that community element. And it seems not to scare off people that might be like, wow, I don't speak Italian at all. Can I even understand the Italian mass? But they're you know, far more you know, interested and open to going to a bilingual English-Italian mass. What does that mean? Does that mean there's some readings in English? Some yeah, so Italian? it would be it could be one reading in English, one reading Italian, or the priest will preach in English. It incorporates elements of both. So let's say some of the songs would be maybe traditional Italian hymns. A few would be maybe you know in English. It would it incorporates both uh, both languages in, in a more balanced way. That seems like a nice inviting way for somebody who might be scared off by the idea that they're not you know fluent enough in Italian. I mean, you know, the beauty of going to Mass in different languages, and I, you know, I try to go wherever I travel in the world, you know, the beauty of the Mass is even in the Novus Ordo Mass, which is always in the local vernacular, the rhythms and the cadences are the same. So you you can, if you have a grasp of the language, at least know where you are in the Mass. And, you know, it's a little bit of an easy situation to follow. It's almost like watching a movie you've watched a million times with, um, dubbing, you know, as a way to sort of familiarize yourself. You you know the parts that are coming, you know what's going on in general, and, and the language sort of fills in. So I, I notice that for people that maybe are scared off by the idea of going to Mass in a language they're not completely fluent in. I think that's important, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, for the Italian community or people, let's say, that were involved in a traditional Italian apostolate, and I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm describing it in a narrow sense, an Italian apostolate that was specifically for immigrants. So for people that are involved in that, an English-Italian mass is viewed as like, well, you're already assimilated. Why even bother having an English and Italian mass? Just have an English mass. But see, the way that I see it is that there shouldn't be an extreme between either all in English or all in Italian. Or once you learn English, then you can just say goodbye to all your Italian traditions and cultures. So going forward, I think that there's a lot of potential for more English Italian masses in communities that you know would be open to it and interested in it because it does bring together you know, b- both of those elements. And it, it's a good experience overall. Now, obviously, you know, if you're going to mass, you should be going for God. You know, that's that's fundamental, especially for people that are Catholics. But I think it does make a difference, you know, how the experience is overall, is the mass in a reverent way. What's the music? What, what are those other types of experiences during that I think also play a role? Eric, one thing that, that I think is... um. I think it's really great about your story to, to, to share with everyone is not only did you go to mass every Sunday with your grandmother in Italian, as a little kid, you went to mass every day with your grandmother in Italian. Am I correct? That is very correct. I think that we were probably the last of the Mohicans um, <laughs> to offer, to offer a daily Italian mass. I think up until recently, a few other parishes, maybe in Elizabeth and I don't know if maybe in Garfield, they had a daily Italian mass, but. Some of my fond, my fondest memories, not some of my fondest memories, uh, were going to eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, Monsignor Ambrosio, may he rest in peace, had seven thirty in Latin, uh, eight o'clock in Italian, and eight thirty in English. So it was like you know a shotgun, one after one after one. Wow. And um, you know that was like my daily routine. My grandmother coming in, you know, wake up, wash your face, we got to go to mass, and that was it. And, and the reason I highlight that is that that is such a part of the Southern Italian experience. I mean, I don't know in the North if it was the same. But like so many of it was always a female thing. It was so many of the women of the town would go to mass every single solitary morning. 
it was kind of like the kickoff to their day. And then they would talk to people afterwards and then they would go home and do the stuff that they did. But that morning mass, I think a lot of people, unless you grew up in a very Catholic place, I think that they don't, the, the, the daily mass people were kind of like the hardcore of the parish. Yeah. They were kind of Vanguard, but in the Italian parish, it was even more so because that was kind of like the men sitting in the piazza talking, uh, playing cards or, or having a cigarette or something. The female equivalent was the mass. You were the last to live that. Absolutely. And I, you know what? And it's funny that you say that, you know, we had a good cohort of, I would say, I mean, I remember like 25 to 30 people. And this is like, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. But, and, you know, like you said, very few men, maybe one or two, but primarily the cohort of the ladies. pious men, the super pious uh, men would go. Yeah. Yes, I still remember ladies uh, dressed to completely in black with the with the rag, uh, with rag, the kerchief on their head, um, still tied in that certain way. We did have two two ladies that did that, which was amazing. I don't think we'll ever 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 see that again. And that's why I think so many people don't realize in urban areas why, like in the diocese of Brooklyn, is there a Catholic church every eight blocks? Because the topography it was set out that you would be able to conveniently go to mass every day. It's funny, when I was living and working in Washington at the National Italian American Foundation, I would go to Mass in the morning before work. I think it was a 7 o'clock or 7.30. And I was always surprised by the diversity of the congregation there. You know, you had more young people than you assumed. You had a lot of business people. And it was incredible to see the juxtaposition of a, a peaceful start to a morning that you knew was going to get hectic for most of these people. And I was always very pleasantly surprised to see the turnout was... A healthy one, you know. I think that that's something that people don't expect, and it was an exercise that I, a devotion that I really, really um, relished in my life at uh, those days. It really made my life so much stronger and more functional to have that in the mornings. And yeah, it's a shame that you don't find Italian masses available like that. I mean, Alexis, you mentioned some of these places do it once a month, right? Yeah. So some do once a month. Some do once a week, actually. And then others are daily. So there's one church left in Brooklyn, St. Dominic. So giving them a shout out, even though I'm from the Archdiocese, not from the Diocese of Brooklyn, but St. Dominic's does have a daily Italian mass. Wow. They're the last parish that in New York State, at least to my knowledge, that has a that does have a daily Italian mass. So so good for them. Where are they? They're located in Bay Ridge, Bensonhurst, that area of South Brooklyn. So Bay Ridge, Diker, Bensonhurst. That's yeah, Rose Neck of the Woods over there. Yes. Yeah, that's still a pretty. I mean, it's spread out more than it's ever been, but it's still a pretty Italian area down in. Yeah, the, it's it's kinda... it's Saint Athanasius, Saint Dominic, mm-hmm. that yeah. that community. I think people don't realize there was the you know the stereotypical Italian immigrant widow, the black dress widow, whose kids had moved out to the suburb. Maybe they see mom on Sunday. That daily mass was besides the spiritual benefits. It was their lifeline to seeing people every day. Yeah. How many people would not have spoken to anyone face to face, a live person, except for someone on the phone in their daily life, if they didn't have that, that daily mass that they went to? You know, it's interesting to think about the fact that these things have changed so much. You know, you talk about the last daily mass here and this and that. But at the same time, you know, as Alexis is pointing out through her work, especially through these kinds of events and things like that, you know, so many churches, so many parishes are oftentimes seeking out new ministries for outreach, right? There's no denying that mass attendance in the Catholic Church 
in the United States and other parts of the Western world is down considerably. And so a lot of churches sort of will explore these ministries or apostolates to see what sticks. You know, okay, we're going to have mass for new parents, or we're going to have, you know, that this, that, and the other, or meetings afterwards, or social groups. And I guess in, in most dioceses and archdioceses where there have been healthy Italian populations in the past or present, there are official apostolates within the archdiocesan or diocesan structure, right? Each of these dioceses will have an office for the Italian apostolate. Is that is that right, Alexis? Well, generally speaking, so the Diocese of Brooklyn does, but the Archdiocese no longer does. Hmm. So it's a bit complicated. So there was an Italian apostolate, and then the priest who I knew, actually, he had died suddenly. He wasn't even elderly. And then it seemed just not to, not really, they really didn't continue it. So what they have is just some sort of general ethnic apostolate office that's also associated with, let's say, interreligious, ecumenical, a whole, a whole bunch of different things. But they're, they're not really focused on ethnic apostolates in general, even if they're not Italian. So even if it's like other cultures as well, let's say like Polish or German or something like that. Aside from maybe Hispanic ministry or Black ministry, there's not as much of a focus on, you know, ethnic apostolates as they used to, because I think the overarching philosophy is that you only need an ethnic apostolate if you're a new immigrant group and you don't speak the language. Once you speak English, then you don't need that anymore. Therefore, just go to the English mass, which I could understand from a, you know, I guess a, a very practical perspective. But I think that that's that's fundamentally not really understanding what an apostolate is or what a ministry is, and then how to adapt that to, you know, a newer population to younger people for just a larger Italian American community, because it's not like Italians have, you know, all died, it's that the people became Italian American. So as far as I'm concerned, there's just there's still so many of us. We're just born yeah. in America, <laughs> but we're still, you know, Italian. We didn't, we didn't like magically go away just because Inonini Vecchi might have passed away. We're still, we're still here. We're just Italian American now. And it's like you said before, you know, it's it's not just a linguistic thing. It's not just like I can't go to mass in English because I don't understand English. It's about really, you know, an identity and a familiarity and the blending of of language and culture and traditions. And I think that that's, you know, talk about the archdiocese in this example. What a large segment to overlook, the idea of Catholicism as it relates to a localized culture. You know, we talk to so many people who describe themselves as cradle Catholics, you know, or cultural Catholics or uh, cafeteria Catholics, a lot of consonants there. But the point being, people who relate to the Catholic Church through their culture and through their traditions and through their habits or the sacraments and things like that. And, you know, it, it's very interesting to see that that, is not an avenue of outreach that the church focuses on more. I had conversations with people yesterday at the baptism talking about, you know, they've married non-Catholics, and one one was told in one church that unless their husband was baptized Catholic, their kid couldn't go to Catholic school. Yeah, but school. that, that, I mean, that was ridiculous. Arbitrary that, stuff. That was it's absolutely it's arbitrary. ridiculous when I heard that story yesterday. Yeah, but that's the point. That's the, the point. My point is, how, how do you expect a church to grow when its leadership is arbitrarily enforcing these kind of wacky almost punishments to people it's it's not very inviting really and that's that's the same lack of a of a sense of invitation that comes with the idea that they're not looking at people's ethnic experiences but just to clarify for the listeners that school had like there was so many whacked out things that we've heard that are either 
priests who are ill-informed or willfully not doing what they're supposed to do, or lay people who are working in the parish who don't follow the rules. But one thing I want to bring up is that, to follow up on that, is that, yes, and it's an Irish-dominated clergy who had the opinion of, well, you speak English now, there's no longer any need for this. Right. But that's not taking into consideration that even if the language of the uh, Italian parishioner is English, right, the first language now, there's still cultural connections that the non-Italian parish is not offering them. Yeah. You know, you go into Mount Carmel. I mean, how many statues do you have in there, Eric? 50? 30 to 40 at least, yeah. Yeah, at least, right? From all different towns in Italy. Like, it's hard for people who are not of the tribe to understand that, right? Eric, people come in and burn candles in front of the specific saint of their town. Yeah, that's true. There's things like that. You know, I remember um, the non-Italian parish that I grew up in for the 800th anniversary of St. Anthony's birth in 1995. I date myself. Well, you two were toddlers. Well, you two were in playpen, <laughs> right? That's mm-hmm. right, right? 1995, right? Not on your radar screen. But I, <laughs> I, I went and I had in my Irish dominated parish with maybe a 30 to 40% Italian um, minority status, I used all my juice to get them to have a mass for the 800th anniversary of the birth of St. Anthony. It was an absolute huge success. People, there were so many people, the Italians fell for the first time, like they were actually recognized. And then when, when the mass was over and I said to the pastor at the time, who was Irish American, very nice guy, but parents off the boat Irish. I said to him, Oh, you know, this was fantastic. We got to do this again next year. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. He's like, this was a one out thing. We agreed to this one out. Then once we do this, then everybody's going to want their mass like for their saint. That's the whole basis of an Italian parish. Yeah, that's true. Italian parishes every day is a holiday. You're the saint from your baies and from and from his baies or her baies. And that was so lost on an Irish pastor. That was you might as well have been speaking like Klingon. I mean, he could not totally understand that. Because, again, it's, a, it's an ignorance or a disdain or a condescension to Italian culture. And I think that that's why there's such a need for an Italian, the Italian national parishes. Pat, don't forget, and you're mentioning, I think the Italians love that little aspect of competition, right? Especially if one Madonna's feast day lines up with another. <laughs> right. Who's got more candles? For those of you out there, Eric has been an official, um, an example cited by the Archdiocese in Newark for how to keep a parish in the black fiscally in great shape because no one sells more candles. Who do you say? Like 3 million candles in Mount Carmel? 10 million candles. It, it's like, look, you, you walk in, it's like Luna Park. <laughs> and, and he doesn't go for the 25 cent or the 50 cent to the dollar candle. You're not walking out of there unless you're dropping at least five bucks. Am I correct? Yeah. I mean, we have, I mean, we have several options. We have a $1, $3 and a $5, just like the olden days. But Eric, for all those out there in Italian American podcast land, why don't you tell them the difference between a one dollar, three dollar, and a five dollar candle? Sure. So it depends on you know it depends on how long it burns, right? So the one dollar lasts ten hours, the three dollar lasts five days, and the five dollar lasts a week. That's pretty good. And if you gotta light a candle because it's Zikun Chet's anniversary, yes, you don't want to go want cheap the on the dollar. Up. If you burn the candle on Sunday and Zikun Chet's anniversary is on Wednesday. You have to get that week-long candle to make sure it's burning on the day of her anniversary of her death. Am I correct? Is that how you sell them, Eric? Absolutely. Is that the key to your success? The key to my success is as follows. I take it so very seriously that when I put it in the bulletin or in the Carmelite or in the newsletter, if somebody wants it lit on a specific day, I will do it on the specific day. If somebody wants it in front of a specific saint, I will put it in front of this. I do it myself. Personally, I guarantee it. 
And then what I do is I fold up the node. And if they, you know, they, they have a devotion to, let's say, St. Anthony, St. Joseph, I, I fold the note and I stick it right under the statue. And, uh, you know, and I think, I think it goes a long way. And, and no additional costs? Is that go, is that, is that all included? <laughs> all included. Candle price? All included. All so even included. if you no. go for a dollar candle, you're still going to go in there and put the little note underneath? Absolutely. I do. You know why? And I'll tell you why. Another another thing to my daily routine, my grandmother woke up at six o'clock in the morning, 630. She would light her candle in front of you know her saints and her deceased relatives. She would start with her prayers in Latin. And that was like her thing, the candle, the candle, the candle. So that's been like ingrained with me. So that's why I take it very, very seriously. So that's why, like that's why we're more Greeks than Italian. That's true. Right. Us and the Greeks have that same like lighting the candle, you know, and, and you know, you picture that, you know, the couple of statues, holy cards with saints on them, then the cards from, from people's wakes, right? So you have a mix yeah. of dead Italian relatives and saints. I mean, really. Yep. Spring has sprung, and there's no better time to immerse yourself in the sights and sounds of Italy. With Mediaset Italia, you can experience the best of Italy from home, bringing you the best programming from Italian channels Canale Cinque, Italia Uno, and Rete Quattro as soon as it airs in Italy, Mediaset Italia has something for everyone, such as the latest in news, politics, and pop culture from sources you trust, top-rated reality shows and competition shows for nonstop entertainment, and the latest dramas and serials starring the biggest names in Italy. There's always something new on Mediaset Italia to kick back and enjoy at the end of the day. Check with your local television provider today. That's like my my grandfather upstate, he, my Sicilian grandfather. He very, I would say, anti-clerical. He's not going to church, but very devoted. But he has built himself years ago. He built a shrine. He moved all the stones himself. It's a beautiful little shrine in, in the valley that him and my grandmother live in up in the Catskills. And it is full of saint statues and holy cards and you know funeral cards and all these things. And every day he goes in and he says his prayers and he lights his candles. And, I mean, it's it's really a beautiful sight to go into because we go up there and light a candle every time we visit him. And it's just piles of wax. I mean, it looks like one of those restaurants where they put the candles in the Chianti bottle and it just melts. I mean, it's just mounds of wax from all these candles he's lit over the 40 years that he's been up there. And it's a beautiful thing to me that he has that same devotion because I, I grew up the same way. My grandmother taking us into church, had to light a candle for this person, had to do it here and what saint. And, you know, that's. But I, I think a lot of people, some Italian Americans and Americans in general, especially the Irish church, mistaken the lack of an Italian man going to mass is almost as an attestation to disbelief. But a lot of Italian men were very anti-clerical, right? They didn't like the particular priest or whatever. So they might go to the club and play cards on Sunday morning while their wife was at mass and drink a cup of coffee and have a cigarette with their friends. But if they would never miss the mass for the feast day of their town. Oh, sure. For their patron saint. Right. And they would and they would they would buy the candles and make the donation. They were pious. They weren't they were maybe a little bit disaffected, unconnected with going to church or being a church goer. But they were not not pious in their own way. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, in Italy, throughout all of its history, for better or worse, the tie between the church and politics has been unlike any other country in the world, really. So, you know, th- th- there's all of that sort of tied to it, right? Ireland? Ar- no, Ar- nobody got Ireland beat. Ireland was a Catholic no, I, theocracy. I, I, I mean, Iran had nothing on Ireland. 
Yeah, but think about the fact that in Italy, you know, so especially in the South, right? So much of the administration of state was surrendered to the church. Same thing in Ireland, Same I suppose. Ireland. I think Ireland yeah. is more so, but but don't you think that the Irish, because because the Irish were oppressed by a non-Catholic invader, the church was a refuge. Where in Italy, the church was an integral part of the state that was sometimes oppressive. Um, I don't know. I just feel like I can understand some of the anti-clericalism in the South. And in a lot of ways, it's reflected in the idea of Italian national parishes and in the difficulty we have when we get here of relating to these very hierarchical and kind of pseudo-Puritan churches that have been set up by Irish leadership, Irish priests, Irish bishops. As we do this podcast, I become increasingly aware that so many of our listeners maybe didn't grow up in an Italian area, didn't grow up Catholic, didn't grow up in an Italian parish. And there's a lot of things that I feel sometimes we have a conversation that some of us get and some of us don't. And I think that um, even for our Italian Canadian listeners and Italian Australian listeners is that you had in Canada and Australia almost completely Italian de facto parishes. So here is Our Lady of Mount Carmel or St. Lucie, and there's a lot of Italians who live there, and we're going to send an Italian priest. But that's not what happened in the United States. In the United States, the Italian parishes actually had territorial boundaries. So what do I mean by that? When the Great Migration happened between, say, 1880 and 1900, the Catholic Church in the United States was either an Irish institution or a German institution, depending on where you were in the country. So probably maybe 40, 60, 50, 60. The hierarchy was like 70 percent Irish, 30 percent German. And um, it kind of worked itself out because they weren't intermixed in neighborhoods. But as you got waves of Poles and waves of Italians and every other Catholic demographic from Europe, you would have a neighborhood that might have on one block were Italians and on the next block were Irish. And the problem was that since the Council of Trent in the late 1500s, the pinnacle of the Catholic Reformation against, against the Protestant Revolution of 1517, canon law, Catholic canon law defined that a parish had to have parochial boundaries. It's like a meets and bounds description on a deed, right? So St. Joseph's Church went from this point to that point to this point, and everyone who lived in those boundaries was obligated to go to that parish, get their sacraments there and the like. And what happened in the United States was, especially with the Italians and the Poles and the Ruthenians, they were the largest ethnic groups that wound up within Irish territorial boundaries of Irish parishes. And the Irish clergy just did not understand these, these Europeans. Even though Ireland was a European country, Ireland had had an experience of persecution. So the church in, persecuted, in Ireland was persecuted from the time of the Protestant Reformation through the English occupation. And it only got a little bit of relief in the late 1700s. And again, with the, with the uh, Catholic Relief Act of 1829. So you have that mentality. And then you have the Italians come to whom religion is a mix of I don't even know where, I mean, where do you begin on that one? You know, um, it's kind of like the home league, my bias is a patron saint. Um, the Virgin Mary's got a lot of power. So they had, they, they had this, this kind of culture, a bombastic celebratory feast culture, because the south of Italy um, had always, like from the time of Constantine up until Garibaldi's invasion in 1860, had always been ruled by a Catholic kingdom, right? So processions and big, gorgeous churches the bombasticisms of Catholicism were nowhere as bombastic as the South of Italy. They're like an animal with no natural predators. No natural predators. So the Italians come to, to Irish parishes. They immigrate. The Italians who came in that early 1880 period 
did not have a mentality that they were going to stay here. A lot of them thought they'd stay in America for 10 or 15 years, make money and go buy, you know, cattle and land back in Italy. Now, the benefit of the time then was all the, the mass was all in Latin, so it was universal for everyone. But the Irish priests couldn't speak Italian, couldn't communicate with the Italians. Um, and they expected the Italians to be dutiful, obedient mass goers, where father called all the shots like he did in Ireland. And the reason that was the case in Ireland was in 1689, when James II had, had, had escaped Ireland, had fled Ireland, the Irish noble class, the educated classes left. A lot of them went to continental Europe. They went to South America. Um, so the Irish peasant class um, held on to their faith as, as the onrush of the, the, the worst parts of English imperialism began to beat them down. So in Ireland, there was this affinity to the priest because he was the learned leader. He was the educated leader of, of the community. And Italy was an anti-carical culture, right? You know, I love the church despite the priest, or uh, he's a good priest as compared to the rest. So they had this very kind of embedded anti-clerical culture. So when the Italians come here, the Irish have never seen Catholics like them. And so there's constant battles because the Italians want to Italian Catholicism in the Irish church. And the Irish are like, maybe these wasps aren't that wrong. These Italians are one step above a pagan and we're going to make them into good Catholics. But as much of a diatribe as this might seem is that what resulted was Pope Leo XIII came out and said, okay, listen, I'm going to bend canon law here a little bit. I'm going to reform it. And now you can have a parish that's not defined by a meets and bounds description, but can overlap another parish and can be created. It's called a personal parish. So people of specific nationalities. So next to the Irish church, we can build an Italian church and that's for the Italians. And next to the Irish and the Italian church, we can build a, a Polish church for the Poles or a German church for the Germans. Because if we don't do this, then we're going to kill each other. That's why Australia and Canada have such fewer amounts of processions because they didn't have a really specific Italian parish. And so then what had to happen is once you had Italian parishes, um, some really good clergy in Italy who said to the bishop, I want to go help the immigrants out came here. Some clergy in Italy who were on the wrong side of, of unification or didn't get along with their bishop. The bishop was like, here's a ticket to America. Just don't come back. You had religious orders like the Scalabrinians, the Tuscan province, the Capuchins. The Servites who sent priests from the, the Italian religious orders to the United States to man these parishes. And they were able to create really a Catholic widow Italy within the walls of that church. You know, they so many Italian churches, they copied the bell tower, the baies in Italy that most of the parishioners were from. They would make a bell tower in America that looked just like that bell tower. Or they'd make the interior of their church look just like the interior of their church in Italy. Or if everybody was from the same town in Italy, they'd have the bishop named the parish if their patron saint to their hometown in Italy. So they really turned these parishes into their own little Italy's. That's the real beautiful thing about the Italian church in the United States. And what Alexis and Eric are doing is they're still continuing that tradition. I mean, really, how beautiful is that? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's more than just going to mass. It's more than just keeping the language and the culture alive. It's a beautiful heritage in its own right. And worthy of preservation in and of itself. So, Alexis, I want to ask you, because you're both in the administration of these things, Eric at a parish level, you at the archdiocesan level, what can our listeners do to support Italian Mass if it is in their area or to create the seed of an Italian Mass if they don't have one? What, what, what are the kind of infrastructure uh, and how can they contribute and how can they help not only reveal what's there but also start anew? Well, I think, first of all, 
I think there needs to be an assessment of the Italian masses in place and just to think about, okay, you know, if we have a mass at eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning, is that really viable for younger people, young families? Can you perhaps change it to 11 o'clock on a Sunday? Or maybe you do it at two or three o'clock on the Sunday. Yeah, but that, that interrupts with macaroni. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's what I'm getting, to, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that, Pat. So for my vision, and this is where I'm hoping to pilot at a local parish where I'm in Westchester, is that to have a mass, an Italian English mass, a bilingual mass at about two or three o'clock, and then supplement that afterwards with this fellowship post-mass hospitality, where people will have that traditional Italian pasta meal or something like that. And then there's also an opportunity for formation, let's say on a saint, on some sort of religious tradition, on a devotion. Now for people that are Italian, or maybe grew up that way, it seems like, okay, you know, what is new about this? Like, or, you know, who cares about this? But from, I guess, in my experience, there's a longing for that because people may have heard that, oh, wow, my ancestors used to have my pranzo at three o'clock, but I don't do that. You know, I don't have any Italians around me or my siblings, my family is away, but I can come to my parish or another local parish where they might have this English Italian mass at two or three o'clock followed by this post-mass hospitality. And I think that's how we envision a more, you know, a more robust, distinctively Italian-American ministry for the future. Now, in terms of what can people do? Well, I'm looking really for leaders in the community that would be willing to do this at their parish. So obviously, you know, there's one of me, I have some volunteers, I'm doing this independently. But if there are other people that are like, okay, wow, I have an Italian mass at my parish, or I don't have an Italian mass, but I have a sizable number of Italians that, you know, that this could possibly work, contact me, I will help you start this. Literally, I'll give you my email, I can even, I'll share it and maybe you guys can put it, you know, on the links, but contact me and I will help you start it. We're really just looking for people to take initiative because the numbers are there. And at least in my experience, that's what I found. The people will come. It's just that people have a hard time taking initiative or starting it or trying to kind of, I don't know, go through the details. It, it can be hard that if you have a new idea proposing it at your parish, but it can be done. These are not, you know, insurmountable roadblocks. But I'm just I'm just looking really to connect with more leaders to see, you know, this can be brought to other parishes. And then obviously I share in New York. So for everyone who's in New York, we do have the catalog of the Italian and English Italian masses that exist, their location, their times. I share them on social media. So if you wanna promote them to your friends, family, others that are interested, please, I'd be happy to share them because this in fact still exists and is serving you know, a, good, a good purpose. We'll definitely be able to share that on our show page so people can link to your Facebook and we'll promote it on our Facebook as well. Yeah, it's really simple to find. You can just tag us or at Italian Mass Project NY on social media. It's easy. And then if you want to send me an email, ItalianMassProjectNY at gmail.com, I literally will answer all the emails. I've gotten some interesting requests from people that are moving to New York or from other areas of New York and want to find an Italian parish, and I've been helping them. And Pat knows that that's true because he helped. He actually uh, connected me with someone recently. Because that's our that's that's our Byzant system. That's right. That's what we. <laughs> that's, no, but I mean, well, like that's look, what like, like like John, like when we came on here, I haven't met one listener that I have not thought was a great person, and I'm not and I'm not blowing sunshine, 
I really show that the I think that the concept of the um, the virtual piazza, it, it really works because if you have someone who's out looking for um, an Italian parish, right? Um, somebody who um, wants that reconnection, someone who's saying to you, like, you know, yeah, I speak English, but I want to go Frank Dosti, right? One of our listeners, right? With a, a prime example. Yeah. You all know him now, right? He reached out to me and I reached, connected everybody. And now you're all friends, right? Yeah. Because we're, 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 we're a clingy, come together, huggy kind of friendly people. And I think it's the beauty of when someone's looking for an Italian parish, that's what they're looking for. But the great thing I want to say is why I'm so happy why this episode gives me such joy is that all of you guys, you two, Jenna, Erica, Frank, all these people I've come across, you are all young. And each and every one of you, I could be your dad. Some countries more than others, not that much of a scandal, but you're the next generation. And I, these, and I call them kids with great affection, continuing that it doesn't die with us. You know, I couldn't bring me any more joy to see that. That's the beauty of even having these two young Italian Americans on today, because you know Alexis says she's always looking for help and and uh, community leaders and spreading the work really to do this kind of stuff. And I think it's safe to say, and Eric, you've got a great leader out in New Jersey, and I think that that's how these kind of things grow. And I think through the platform like the Italian American Podcast, if you're out there in any state of the union and anywhere throughout the country, and you want to contribute to this and help bring Alexis's project outside of New York and create a database around the country. I think it's something that would go a long way in helping people reattach not only to their faith, but to their culture and to their roots. And I think it's a great and worthwhile project. And I love Alexis, the idea that, you know, if you're one of those people who still wants to have a Sunday and you don't have the family to do it with, or your family's not participating, we, we always, you can't really do these things alone. They're not, they're not the same, but here's the idea that you can unite, your church and that fellowship and that community. And it's kind of the model of the family that you choose. I mean, I always talk about having an open table on a Sunday and inviting everybody to be there. And I think that that's, that's a beautiful way to kind of collectivize the desire to see these things continue. And I think you're leading that in a very institutional way in the idea of fellowship and the food being combined with faith. And I think that that's a great model. No, th- thank you for saying that, John. I, I appreciate that. And that's, that's really what I found. Like, okay, obviously you have to have the mass. That's fundamental. But that post-mass hospitality fellowship afterwards, it's a place for community. It's a place for formation. Because, you know, I think for us, we're very familiar with devotions, with saints, with processions. But for a lot of people, they might not be. They might be Italian-American. But how are they going to learn about the saints of their town if no one is teaching them? So I really think that that component, that after mass component is really, is really, really important. And then to do this in a systematic, organized way. And then, you know, it, it's also intentional. And something there's beauty in intentionality, because if you're making a choice to go to an Italian mass or an English Italian mass, as opposed to, you know, just a regular English mass, you know, you know that you're going there for a specific reason. You want to, let's say, become more familiar with the language or because you're looking for that community and fellowship. And I think as people in the church, you know, we should be embracing that. And as Italian Americans, we should be cultivating that further and just, you know, being so joyful and happy to show off our traditions and then have them, you know, pass on to, you know, younger generations. That's what we're all about on this show is evolving the culture forward. And this is a great example of doing that. And at the as everybody who's listening is going to hopefully want to visit our show page afterwards and see 
not only about Alexis's project and how they can participate and how they can send what they know and, and help put their hard work into expanding out the Italian Mass and also to see what Pat's doing with this feast and come be a part of it because it's all the same stuff. This is about creating opportunities for our culture to thrive in new ways, and that's what we're all about here at the Italian American Podcast. So hopefully this has been an insight into some wonderful ways to bring our culture forward, and you two will go out and do your part for the evangelization of Italian America. I think that's really, really important on a lot of levels. So we hope you've enjoyed. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano and you're...